the implication here is that unity is a lot bigger deal than maybe we've realized. Right? I've, I've taught, even in the recent past, about how holiness is a much higher calling and more important calling than perhaps a lot of believers acknowledge. Can I say unity is right up there? Unity is a lot higher and holier and greater and more important of a calling than a lot of us have realized in the past. But you know this if you're a parent and you have multiple children and how much you'd love for them to have unity. As Christians, there is a time to divide, to actually split up and say, I will not fellowship with you. I will not be around you for at least certain events and certain things in life. So as Christians, there is a time to divide. But so often we find ourselves as Christians dividing when we're not supposed to divide and then staying united when we should be dividing. <laughs> so these are the two problems we see. And I think that uh, you can easily take what we're doing in Romans 14 and 15 out of context and use it as an excuse to stay united when you should be dividing because these are essential doctrinal issues or something like that, or someone's living a life of constant sin and they need to be excommunicated in a biblical sense and follow the scriptures on that in a loving sense meant to restore them, not to, not to hurt them or push them down. Um, so let me, let me start this by way of reminder. Um, the, the six conclusions we came to at the end of last week's study in Romans 14. So just a reminder to kind of refresh your mind. This is going to help us out because Romans 15, the first few verses, it completely depends on you understanding Romans 14. It's really one is built on the other. So the six conclusions from Romans 14 were that there are things which are not inherently sinful. They're not inherently sinful. And we mentioned several by name. But you, the list could go on and on and on. It could be like what kind of music I listen to. You know, Some music, someone would think that that's wrong. Other person says it's not. But when you really look at it, it's not inherently sinful. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. Um, and this is what we call convictions or scruples, or basically how you feel about what's right and wrong in you following Jesus on areas that are maybe a little unclear for some people. So those are convictions. That's, that's the first thing. There's things that are not inherently sinful. We call this an area of convictions. They're really okay, but it doesn't feel okay, which means it's not okay for you. That's the second conclusion, which is that they are still sinful for some people. Romans 14 makes it very clear. Even though maybe alcohol is acceptable in the eyes of God, because it's not acceptable in your eyes, you better not do it. Don't violate your conscience. Don't mess with this. Uh, the Bible says if it's not of faith, it's sin. So it becomes, something clean becomes unclean, so to speak, because of my conscience for me, but not for everybody. And that's, that's conclusion number three, is that my conscience has the ability to make something sinful that's not sinful. That's the, that's the superpower of the conscience. <laughs> it can turn things that aren't sinful into sin. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing, because maybe you personally need that protection against that thing. And it's just not, everybody else doesn't need it. This might be a really good, healthy thing. Your conscience being super sensitive here might be protecting you. Whereas for someone else, they don't need that same protection in that same area. Um, the Bible calls this person weak in the faith when they, when they have all these extra rules that are unnecessary, but they aren't, they aren't bad. They're probably good for the person in all reality. So the conscience, uh, it's, it makes things sinful, but it cannot do the flip. It cannot make things okay that are not okay. I feel okay about this. In fact, I've, I've heard people, ask, we got to ask these questions in the right order. When you come across an issue of life and you're asking, is it wrong for me to fill in the blank? You describe an activity. And then the first question you ask is, do I feel like it's wrong? Okay, out of order. This is the last question you ask. 
The first question you ask is, is there clear biblical revelation on this topic? And if the answer is yes, the Bible says it's wrong, then it doesn't matter how you feel. It's like pretty, pretty basic. It doesn't matter how I feel. It's already wrong. That's clear. The conscience can't make something the Bible says is wrong into something that's okay. Um, that's a malfunctioning conscience. That's a conscience that tells me I'm okay when I'm not. That's a seared conscience. That's a darkened thought. And I don't want to follow that. I want that to be, um, I want the alarm to go off when I see that the Bible tells me it's not okay. So <clears throat> that's that's this, the last test. The last question you ask is, how do I feel about it? First you say, is the Bible clear? clearly speak to this issue? Um, and then later down the road you can say, how do I feel about it? And you also have to ask things like, does it, does it, does it bother or hurt my friend, my loved one, my brother or sister in Christ? And that's the fourth thing, which is the strong bears with the weak. Maybe you have the boldness to say, I can enjoy things to the Lord that someone else feels guilty about. And I know it's okay because scripture makes it clear that this is okay. But when I'm, when I'm in the presence of the person who it's not okay for them, I won't do it. The strong bears with the weak. That's the fourth principle. The fifth principle we learned is do not violate your conscience. Um, just a reminder, don't violate your conscience. As soon as you start to realize that you think something's wrong, you feel like it's wrong, and you go, I'm actually not even right. It's, it's, it's okay, but I still feel like it's wrong. Keep your conscience. Obey that thing. Don't try to transform it and change it. Don't push yourself into sin uh, over those issues. <clears throat> and then number six, the final one is the main point of all of this that is so often missed is unity. And that's what I started with. Is it's unity. The idea is unity. God's like saying, look, Here's a bunch of Christians. You love Jesus. You want to follow the Lord. But here we have the weaker conscience. You're judging and condemning those who are doing things you feel are wrong. They're not really wrong, but they're wrong for you. You're judging them. And then we have the stronger conscience looking down on you. Oh, self-righteous, pharisaical attitude. Over, and and we're, we're looking down on one. We're despising one. We're judging the other. And the, and, the, and the church is dividing on this issue. But God wants us to be unified. I was thinking about this. The analogy of scripture for us as Christians, our unity, the description is, we often talk about being a family in God. We're God's family. And there's a truth to that because we're brothers and sisters of each other, right? But the most common analogy, I think, is body not family. You know what's more unified than a family? A body. Isn't that interesting? Just think of the type of unity that God has in store for us, where we're so connected in love and and acceptance of each other, that we're called a body, one body, with Jesus as the head. Like, that's the goal of unity. And it is as high as the goal of holiness. That's the goal of unity. And it's it, it excites me because I'm going, if God says we're to do this, that means we can. Like, we can. We just have to walk in this and be become the, the, the initiators of this for others around us. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So, um, so, starting in Romans 15, with that background, Romans 15, verse 1, it says, We then, who are strong, ought to bear with the scruples of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So this is, this is the conclusion. Really, this is the end of 14. Chapter 15 is the end of chapter 14 here so far. So the ones who are strong are those who are fully aware of their liberty in Christ. It's not talking about someone who has the power to cast out demons. It's not talking about someone who has special spiritual gifts, so they're strong. It's just conscience issues. They're fully aware of the liberty they have in Christ. They know that they can partake of alcohol and enjoy this as unto the Lord. They, they don't abuse it to get drunk. That's, that's egregious sin in the eyes of God. <clears throat> um, they enjoy meat, whether it's considered kosher or not, as unto the Lord. They enjoy it. They thank God for it. 
They don't care about what days people worship. They're like, yeah, I worship every day unto the Lord. Um, but they're strong, and then the other person is weak, and the weak person doesn't have those things at all. They go, ah, I can't handle uh, the alcohol, or I, I can't even be in the presence of, of that kind of food product or something like this. Wh- whatever the issue is, the days, the Sabbath is really important to them. Um, now, it's interesting because really, I say strong and weak, strong, those are generalities. But the truth is, a lot of us, we're strong in one area, we're weak in another. Um, and so, if, if we tried to model the whole church after any one of us, our own conscience, it would be a peculiar church. And if you just modeled after each individual person, it would just keep changing. The whole church would just shift every time we did this. Which is why, when it comes to the teaching ministry of the pulpit, we shouldn't try to put our conscience into the ministry of the teaching, I think. That's why I'm trying to be careful to, to distinguish between how I feel about something and what scripture says about it and let the Bible be my, my guide here. I, I think it's interesting how some atheists are like, it's interesting, Mike, how your, your God thinks everything just like you do. And I'm like, nope. Like, have you heard me teach? Like, nope, that's not the case at all. I keep changing my mind based upon what God says. I don't have a God made in my own image, but I do want to be more in, more in his image. So the, uh, the weak conscience person, they may be doctrinally aware they may not even be doctrinally aware. Maybe they think these things really are wrong. I find that this is often the case. We often think if it's wrong for me, it's wrong for everyone. Because in a lot of situations, that's true. But not in every situation. This isn't moral relativism. I think we understand the philosophy of the scripture here. It's not moral relativism by any way, shape, or form. It's just a conscience issue. Um, the church is always going to have these people, and that's why in Romans it doesn't say, get unified with the same conscience. It says, get unified with different consciences. Don't let the church divide over lines of conscience. Lines of certain doctrines, yes. Lines of, of, of blatant, sinful, you know, habitual sin in a person's life, absolutely. But not lines of conscience. Don't let that happen. So the church will always have those people, the strong, the weak, they should be fellowshipping together. They should be okay with this. The weak, get over yourself. The strong, get over yourself. Make it happen. And when the consciences collide, the Bible's totally clear on who has to give in and who has to give up their rights. The strong. This is God's command. It's not, it's not up to you. We, we then who are strong, I like how Paul includes himself in this. He was a very strong person in understanding his liberties. He says, we then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak. That's what happens. The weak in the faith, I take their scruples or their ethics and I bear with them. I like the phrase bear with them. It doesn't say that the strong has to share the scruples of the weak. That's what the weak wants. I feel it's wrong and I want you to feel it's wrong too. And I'm not really happy till you do. Okay, stop. That's not biblical. But the strong, they want the, 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 the weak to get over themselves and stop, stop, you know, messing up my life. Stop telling me what I can and can't do kind of thing. But it's so, so neither of those are the solution. The solution is strong. Just bear with them. Yeah, they have unnecessary scruples, so to speak here. Bear with them. Take them on and carry them on your shoulders. And Paul did this, right? When he says to the Jews, I was like a Jew. To the Greeks, I was like a Greek. That, I love that verse. It's so often quoted to excuse sin. Have you noticed this? People quote, to the, Jew, to the Greeks, the Greek, and then they go and do something crazy. But that, that's, that's not how Paul used it. He used it in this area of conscience. He's like, to the Jew, I bear with the scruples they have. To the Greek, I bear with the scruples they have. Yet, before God, I will never walk in sin before him. So, it, perfect example of this sort of thing. Um, 
not to please ourselves. That, that's, that's the idea. So that the, the strong will find, if, if you have really str- more strength than those around you in this particular sense, you will find that you regularly have to put off your liberties and things that you like so that you can bear with this person. And you might be like, well, why? That takes a lot of work on my part. That takes a lot of energy and effort on my part. And all I can say is unity is that important. Oneness in the body of Christ is that worthwhile that my exercising of my liberty isn't worth hurting this thing of unity. I don't want to stumble my brother, but I also don't want to divide from him. Because I can be like, well, I'm not stumbling him. I'm just never going out to eat with that guy. Problem solved. It's like, or no, I've just divided. I've, I've fixed. We don't fix interpersonal problems by just cutting people off out of our lives. Like that's not the Christian way. We don't just like unfriend people at a heartbeat's notice because of those things. So not to please ourselves. Um, that means to satisfy yourself or to do what seems good. It says there in, uh, in, in verse one, not to please ourselves. <clears throat> Christians are always supposed to be serving. And it's a good thing to ask yourself in that question, in that, in that moment of conscience is colliding. You know, they, they want to go out to the movies with us. We said, we're going out to the movies Thursday, and they want to come with us. But I know them. They're going to have to watch some kitty cartoon because they can't handle anything. Then I will bear with the scruples of the weak, and we will have unity with them, and I will not please myself in my desire for whatever movie it was that I wanted to watch. That I'm assuming was not actually sinful <laughs> in this example. Um, that's the idea. Christians should always be serving, right? We serve God first, we serve others next, and then I serve me last. And that's, it's that easy. It's so simple. Um, I think that's the key in this area of conscience. If I get my selfishness out of the way, I will see very clearly how to handle these issues of of consciences colliding and and having differences. I please myself when I enjoy my liberty at the expense of your scruples. That's when I'm pleasing myself. I please myself when I enjoy my liberty and potentially embolden you to compromise your scruples to the Lord because you're, you want to do the thing you see me doing. It's peer pressure, and it, it's a real thing. We all deny peer pressure because we wouldn't want anyone around us to think we're, we're submitting to peer pressure because that wouldn't be something we would want them to think about us. And the peer pressure is strong for that one. Um, I'm enjoying my liberty and pleasing myself when I divide from you as a solution so I don't have to give up my liberty. Don't let people rob you of your liberty in the sense of telling you something sinful when it's not. That's them robbing you of your liberty. But please give up your liberty in the sense of bearing with their scruples for the sake of unity. That's a good thing. That, that's the balance. That's the balance. At no point is the strong going, yeah, you're right. All those things are bad that aren't really bad. And then we have this like incredibly strict environment that becomes sort of unhealthy. And, and just anecdotally, like I've noticed this doing youth ministry, is that at some point teenagers... They'll open their Bibles, hopefully, God willing, and they start reading and they go, hey, some of your rules aren't even in here. Hmm. And then what we haven't done is we haven't taught them things like moderation and wisdom. And so then they just, you know, they just kind of like sometimes recklessly run in. And that's the foolishness that's bound up in the heart of a child, so to speak. And I've seen that happen. And more and more now, uh, having done youth ministry for a number of years, I'm like thinking, Maybe, maybe childhood is a great time to start teaching kids moderation and wisdom and not just having the strictest possible set of rules on them that eventually um, don't prepare them to make wise decisions as an adult. And I'm thinking that, that that's what scripture gives us though, right? That, that's following actually the model of scripture. 
So I, I'm not saying one size fits all here, but those are some observations that I've got. So this is, um, this is just love. This is me loving you, you loving me. You're bearing with my scruples, I'm bearing with your scruples, and we're staying united, and we're not allowing it to divide us because we're like fighting for relationship with each other. That's the idea. Endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace, the scripture says. <clears throat> this is a very practical love. It's not like the Valentine's Day love that the world thinks of. I mean, Valentine's Day is nice, but the idea of sort of the romantic style love is a great way of ignoring most of the love you're supposed to give people. <laughs> By focusing on romance, we ignore love. And we forget that there's a brotherly, sisterly love. There's a, just a kindness, a graciousness, a selflessness that we give to others. Serving others so that I could benefit them. The point here is that this, the, uh, the strong bears with the scruples, not shares the scruples of the weak. And the, and the purpose of this is in verse 2, it's for his good leading to edification. And I think that's super important to keep that in mind. Verse 2. It tells us why, or like the, the target, the goal of this. I'm not pandering to your weak sauce little scruples, okay? That's not the goal. This isn't, no, no. I want to help you. I want to build you up in the faith. I want to strengthen you. So this, I think, is a key. Because last week in the Q&A, we were talking about it. It was asked, how strict do I have to get with my life? Like if someone passes me a note and they're like, you know, lady, I don't like when you do that with your hair. That, whoa, you're stumbling, you're stumbling people, you know? That, that violates my conscience. Whoa, don't do that. I don't think that that's appropriate. You know, sometimes when you laugh, I think it draws too much attention to yourself. Like, like what kind of people do we become if we start allowing everyone to dump everything upon us? And it, it obviously becomes unhealthy. So the question is this, does the scripture give us a safeguard against that sort of abuse? And I think it does right here in verse two. Verse two says, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So if... The, if me bearing with your scruples is no longer even healthy for you, I'm not going to do it anymore. And me allowing someone to have not just scruples, but kind of an, uh, an odd, um, not even healthy in any way, not for them or for you, sense of scruples that they're trying to pour on everyone else. At that point, it's not healthy. It's not for their good. At that point, I say no, and I refuse. But if it's on those issues of specifically mentioned, like of, of, of food and drink and, and worship days and things like that, here's the examples where we absolutely bear with people in those issues. So I like that. Uh, for his good. For his good. Is this edifying you or is it just enabling you to be judgmental and controlling? If I'm just enabling you to be judgmental and controlling, I'm going to stop. But if it's edifying you, if I'm actually helping assist my brother or sister, then I'll do it. Not that every situation will be super easy to figure out, <laughs> but that I think helps. Verse three, it says, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So the example here, I think, is that Christ bore our sins. I think that this is from Psalm 69, by the way. I think that the, uh, the statement that the reproaches of those who reproached you, I think it may be that there are accusations that rightly come our way and Jesus bore those on the cross. And so he's saying, look, here's my example of love. I took all of the reproaches and accusations and guilt that you had, can you bear with their scruples? I bore your sin. Can you take on their scruples? <laughs> I think that, I think that it's, it's almost embarrassing to be asked to do this at, at that level, comparing it to the sacrifice of Jesus. But it really does encourage me to do this. Can you just bear with their scruples? I'm very encouraged by Romans 14 and 15. I love God's solution to what is a problem in every fellowship 
in every home church, in every group of any more than one Christian of different scruples. Perfect solution. So this is interesting how Psalm 69 is quoted. It's actually quoted, it's the second most quoted psalm in the New Testament. It's quoted a lot, Psalm 69. But if you read through it, you would, you would read it and go, is this about Messiah or is it like messianic-ish? Because <laughs> there's some clearly messianic stuff in Psalm 69, but there's some stuff in there that may not be totally clearly messianic. It seems like that's just about David. But I think what we have to understand is this. When we read prophecy in the Old Testament, sometimes it's clear, direct prophecy of this coming Messiah. Sometimes it's a picture of something which gets fulfilled later. Other times it's more like, as David, so will the son of David be the Messiah called the son of David. So we find parallels and things like that. So there's different kinds of prophecy. I never use the more vague picture prophecies to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. I prove he's the Messiah through like Isaiah or through, I mean, actually I have the whole series evidence for the Bible. We go through several different prophecies there on how to prove Jesus is the Messiah. But once you've secured that he's the Messiah, now you can go back at the Old Testament and you can ask, now what else is hidden here? You know, you ever watch one of those movies where at the end of the film, there's a total twist? Like, and then you go back and you watch the movie again and you realize they were doing this the whole time and hiding it from you so that they could get you to pay more money and watch it again. (laughs) This is kind of what the Bible does. The Bible goes, and here's the twist. The Messiah comes and he dies and he rises again. And then you go, yeah, no, that's, that's in there. But you go back and read it again and you go, whoa. And this is kind of, it's like, if you've ever watched one of those movies with the producer's commentary or the director's commentary, have you guys ever done that? I've done that. Sorry, I'm a dork, but I've done that. I thought it was really interesting. What happens, though, is we are sort of going back to the Old Testament, watching it again, now with the commentary of the Lord upon it, looking at it through the lens of the New Testament, through the vision of of who Jesus is, and we're seeing it new. Not abusing it, but rather seeing what God had embedded in the scripture all along. So Psalm 69 is an example of this. It's one of those things where it's just just perfectly like that. Um. On the road to Emmaus, we, we read about this in Luke, how Jesus takes these, these two disciples and he walks them through Moses and the prophets and he just starts speaking to them about how the Christ is throughout these, these pages, throughout the pages of the Old Testament. And, they're, and, and they go, didn't our hearts burn within us when he opened the scriptures to us? And, and you're like, I wish I could have been in that Bible study. And I'm like, you can. Like, read the New Testament, go back and read the Old and the Light of the New, and we're in that study. In fact, I'm thinking, tell me you guys think about this. I'm thinking about doing a um, Jesus in the Old Testament series after Romans uh, for Sunday nights. I thought that that would be um, very rewarding, especially when you get to books like Leviticus that you might not feel is, is very rewarding for you personally. And then you see this, this stuff that's in there about Jesus and it's, yeah, you love it? Yeah, because you know, because <laughs> you, you got the producer's commentary on it. That's why. So anyway, something I'm thinking about doing. Um, <clears throat> I think it'd be very exciting. So... That, I think, is what Psalm 69 is, is, is doing and, and what they're doing with Psalm 69 here. It's seeing it in light of Jesus Christ. It's fair. It's, it's legitimate. It's unlike the stuff where they try to read Muhammad into the Bible. Have you ever looked at Muhammad in the Bible? It's only the most vague, picturesque, like really disconnected stuff. Whereas Jesus, there's a consistency throughout the whole Bible as well as those, as well as those very clear prophetic fulfillments of Jesus um, that we can anchor it all onto. So, moving forward, verse 4. It says, for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, 
that we, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, might have hope. This is one of those verses you could just read and just kind of move past. But it is a deeply profound verse that we need to look at. The point here is the Old Testament, that's, from Paul's perspective, that's what was written before. The Old Testament was written for our learning. Don't discount it. I have heard so many people in teaching, they say things like, oh, I know this is Old Testament, but... And they kind of set it aside. The Old Testament should never lose its value in a Christian's life. The law of Moses doesn't have the same place in the life of a Christian as it did in the life of a Jew before the time of Jesus. That's true. But the Old Testament and the Mosaic law are not exactly the same thing, are they? I mean, the Mosaic law is in the Old Testament, but it's part of the revelation of God. And it was written, it says, for our learning. Our learning. And who is he writing to? The Romans. He's writing to New Testament mixed group Jew and Gentile believers. That's who he's writing to in Romans. And he says, it's for our learning. The Old Testament's for you too. I love what 2 Timothy 3.16 says and 17. It says this about the Old Testament as well. It says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And if I back this do this backwards, it means if I don't let the word of God give me doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness, I will not be complete, mature, and I will not be equipped for every good work. And I will find that I tackle the issues of life unprepared because of not having enough scripture in my heart and mind. So it's a pretty big deal. Pretty big deal. Um, So it's written for our learning. I like that word learning. We're supposed to be learning the Bible, not just getting motivational messages from it. Now, I, when I first got saved, that's what I went to the Bible for, was motivational, inspirational moments. That's what I went to Scripture for. So I did the popcorn thing where you pop the Bible open and you're like, looking for some encouragement here. Nah, let's try again. Um, you're a chosen generation. royal. Pre- I like that. All right, I'm taking that one with me today. And I did that. I, as I, was, I was young in the Lord and I was not skilled in the Word of God. And I, I didn't sit dir- immediately under a good Bible teaching. And... That was my experience with the Bible. And that's unfortunately, that's not learning, is it? <laughs> now, God does use that. I mean, we can all testify of how many times you did open the Bible and the Lord did minister to you through that. But that can't be the whole scope of my Bible learning. I'm going to be so weak and unprepared for the things in life. Um, yeah, it's just not, not, not good. It's not good. So what I want to do is learn the scriptures, learn the word of God, not just hear it, which means my devotional reading takes on new dimension. My daily reading of the Bible isn't so I can get daily inspiration. It's so I can get daily education. That's different. And now I don't approach it going like, oh, I read the Bible for 30 seconds and it didn't give me that same like, ugh, that I got when that other guy prepared, you know, for eight hours a message that he then delivered. (laughs) It's like, well, no, instead I'm just, I'm storing up the word of God. I'm just, I'm chewing it in. I'm storing it in. God's going to bring it out when I need it. And it's all going to pile precept upon precept, line upon line. I'll learn and grow. So it's for my learning, not just, not just for me to be inspired. Although that element is true. I'm not just counting that. Let's just not isolate it. God appoints teachers for the church. That's what the scripture says. He actually gives us teachers. So obviously there's something to learn in the word of God. That's a good thing. Proverbs 13.4. Here's the verse I have for us. If, if you're having a hard time learning the Bible, here's my encouragement to you. If you're having a hard time getting in the word and reading it faithfully and, and, and 
plotting verse by verse through the scriptures to try to understand it. And there's certain books you just go, I don't even want to look at that book. If that's you, this verse is for you. Be encouraged. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. The soul of a lazy man desires and has nothing. But the soul of the diligence shall be made rich. I really want to know the Bible. I just don't want to learn the Bible. I want to know it, not learn it. And that then you will always want to know it, but you'll never have that. Just, just be in the word. Let your mind to the best of your ability stay in the scriptures. Don't get discouraged. It's just an utter waste of time. Um, know it to the best of your ability. But it's not just intellectual. That's not it. Because it says the things were written before. They were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So it's not just intellectual. There's also patience in the scriptures and comfort in the scriptures. I like those two words. Why patience? Because I am waiting on a kingdom that has not yet come. The kingdom is not of this world. I will live this entire life as a pilgrim passing through, like we read when we went through the book of First Peter together. I'm a pilgrim passing through. And so I always need patience. I always need to be reminded that this world is not my home, that my citizenship is in heaven, and that the ultimate glory that's to come, that's what I'm living for. And I'm storing up treasures in heaven. And so I have to be patient for that reality. And the scripture is going to remind me of this and stir up this patience in me. It gives me examples. It gives me teachings. It gives me just inspirational messages as well. All of the above. But also comfort. The scripture also comforts. It's interesting because I'm comforted from scripture in two ways, experientially in my life. Sometimes I'm comforted in the scripture by reading truths that comfort me because it just sets my mind right. I go, amen, it's true. That's true. What was I thinking? What was I thinking? You know, and I'm, I'm comforted in that sense. There's another sense I'm comforted in the scriptures, and I don't know how else to explain this except to just tell you how, how it happens to me because I think you might know it as well. I read the Bible, and somehow I'm comforted. <laughs> I just am. I just get in the Word, and I go, nothing I read directly dealt with the issue I'm struggling with, but I am just comforted because I just heard his voice. I just sat at his feet. I just got, got in the Word. And I've had that happen so many times. I'm tremendously comforted in both ways by the word of God. Renews my patience. Um, If you read the Bible and you don't get it, if you read the Bible and you feel like something's wrong there, something's missing in your reading of the Bible, there's two ways you can handle it. One is you blame yourself and the other one is you blame the Bible. You've heard the people blame the Bible. I try to read the Bible, but it's just so boring. Then there's the blame themselves person. I try to read the Bible, but I'm just so impatient. Do you see the difference? I think that we should not blame God's word if we're having a struggle with it or a problem with it. I think God understands us. He sees where we're at and he wants us to simply produce one thing, faithfulness. Just be faithful with, he's giving you his word, just be faithful in it. Don't worry about it if you don't get every single thing. I certainly don't. And you never will get all of it. Uh, That's not actually entirely the point but just to be faithful with what God's given you. So through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, we might have the final word there is hope. Hope. Hope is uh, confidence to a Christian. It's, and it should be to anybody. If you have real hope, it's not, I sure hope so. No, actual hope when I have real hope, it's like, no, no, I, that's going to happen. And it's the thing I'm holding on to that's getting me, carrying me through the stuff I'm going through today. Hope is confidence. It's not only knowing your future, but it's letting your current attitude be impacted by that knowledge. So I know my future, but I'm, let me read that again. Cause this is, this is, I think profound 
Hope is not only knowing your future. I know I'm going to go to heaven when I die. I know I'm going to be with the Lord. Right? It's not only knowing your future, but letting your current attitude be impacted by that knowledge. That's the thing. And how, how can you possibly come around to this if, it's, if it hasn't been your, your modus operandi? If it's not been the way you've been living your life recently, well, through the patience and comfort of the scriptures, you might have hope. Be in the word. It will restore your focus. It'll encourage your hope. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. It's a beautiful thing. Just think of the, the future that you have in Christ. Just think of it. Doesn't that give you hope? <laughs> Doesn't that encourage you? Isn't it like, and the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. Thank you, Lord. Verse 5, he says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus, that you may, with one mind and one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a prayer now, right? May God grant you, because, and I think that this is, this is good for us. He just gave us in Romans 14 and 15 all these rules for, for unity, and then he ends it by going, Oh, Lord, help him. Because <laughs> it's just acknowledged that if we're really going to have unity, God's going to have to be involved in the process. Like, it won't just come through my raw efforts of trying to be unified with people. Um, this is why Ephesians 4.3, it says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Imagine if I took the Holy Spirit out of that sentence. It says, endeavoring to keep the unity in the bond of peace. Now, there's no Holy Spirit in that now, but, but with the Holy Spirit, is endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. See, as I'm connected with God, as he's my target, he's the one I'm setting my heart upon. I'm more unified with other believers. And I have seen this to be a, a reality in my life. I've, I've got, by God's grace, I've got more unity now with believers than I've ever had in my life. You know, I go back 10 years, I wasn't nearly as unified, right, with other Christians. I go back further, I was even more divisive. I go back even further, and I was pretty much like, you're right on, you're not, you're not, you're not. <laughs> like, that was kind of my attitude. Why? Because, because of my own view that my scruples were the lens through which I would view everyone else and their walk with God instead of just doing it through scripture, which is harder, but it produces more unity. So, <clears throat> endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Let, let's, let's do this. May the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. But as with all things, what God enables us to do as a Christian, we also are asked to walk in the thing he enables us to do. So obviously there's, a, there's, a, there's us serving in those things and us walking in those things that God is calling us to do and enabling us to do. Um, like-minded is an interesting word. That's the request that we be like-minded according to Christ Jesus. Like-minded here, I don't think it means agreeing. I don't think it means agreement at all because, and that's what Romans 14 and 15 has done is it's just literally said, it's okay, disagree. So the like-minded here is, is not about agreeing about everything. It's about not having a divisive attitude towards each other. It's about being as Christ Jesus who says, I'll unite you to myself and having this attitude of Jesus Christ towards others as well. Um, so there's something that's there that we, we usually use the term, well, we're like-minded believers. And what we mean is we have the same convictions. And that's not really, I don't think, what the biblical term is about. The biblical term, should, we could be like-minded without the same convictions. 
we have the mind of Christ for the unity of the body. That's, I think, the idea that's there. So if we get into camps, we've totally missed it. We've missed it. The very heart of the issue I've missed if I'm separated into camps. If you cannot fellowship with somebody because of an issue of scruples, that's a great sadness to the body. Um, and you're missing out and they're missing out. And ultimately, <clears throat> it's not what God's calling us to do. Ultimately, then we can glorify God in verse 6 through our unity. One mind, one mouth, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So my unity with believers produces the glory of God. The implication here is that unity is a lot bigger deal than maybe we've realized. I've taught, even in the recent past, about how holiness is a much higher calling and more important calling than perhaps a lot of believers acknowledge. Can I say unity is right up there? Unity is a lot higher and holier and greater and more important of a calling than a lot of us have realized in the past. But you know this if you're a parent and you have multiple children and how much you'd love for them to have unity. You get it. Doesn't the Lord want us to have unity? Even more than that, in all reality. Your unity with other believers is not an issue of your comfort or an issue of how great they are or you or anything else. It's not an issue of whether you're an introvert or an extrovert. No, no. It is an issue of the glory of God. Changes everything. Verse 7, it says, Therefore, receive one another just as Christ also received us to the glory of God. Look, if you're in Christ and you're walking with Jesus, how on earth can I not have unity with you? Like, that's got to be my only ultimate requirement. If you're in Jesus, how can I be divided from you? If you're not in Jesus, then I want to invite you to be in Jesus so I can be unified with you. So I'm either unified with you or I'm outreaching to you. These are the options, you know? And even on those occasions where true discipline and division is required, we basically, as, a, as Christians, we tell people, you have to leave. And as soon as they walk out the doors of the church, we're like, come back. <laughs> we're just telling them to leave their baggage outside that they were bringing into the church because a little leaven leavens the lump. It brings sin into the building. It brings not just the building, but the body of Christ, you know. And so, of course, there's that for the protection of the, of the group, we have to separate sometimes. But those are the, the, the more rare things. So <clears throat> I just want to c- close our service by praying for unity. Um, and for unity, we're going to pray for it. Think of the people you actually know that are believers that you encounter in your regular life. Maybe there's someone at church uh, in your fellowship that you've got like a, a bit of an issue with. They kind of bug you. They rub, they rub you the wrong way. We call them sandpaper people to make ourselves feel good about how bad they are. Um, maybe I'm the sandpaper person. <laughs> um, but let's, let's think of their exact faces, their exact names, that exact person, and let's pray for unity with those people and see what the Lord does. I've seen God answer this prayer in my life where I just start praying for someone I can't stand. (laughs) Lord, help me have unity with them. Please bless them, Lord. And watching God change my heart. And that's the thing that then triggers a transformation in their heart too. And it's been a beautiful thing because I am amazing and holy and every, no, I'm kidding. (laughs) But But I've seen this reality of God doing this work and responding to this prayers. He prays that God would bring us unity. Let's respond by echoing that prayer now. Um, Father God, We pray, Lord, for those whose faces we can think of now, whose names come to our minds when we think about how we're struggling to have unity with people. Maybe with those people, it's, it's not just them, it's us. Our hearts are bitter. Our hearts are cold, thick skinned instead of thin skinned towards that person in, in having love for them. We pray first, help us to have the mind of Christ to them. Help us be like-minded towards them, even if they're not towards us. 
Help us to start a change and transformation with the way we look at them, the sound of our voice, even the tone in our voice when we talk to them, to show the love and the unity of Christ with that person or those people. We pray for unity in our local fellowships. We pray for unity and love and compassion, that the body would be one, that suspicion would be replaced with compassion. We wouldn't compromise holiness, Lord, but that we would see how important um, fellowship is. God, we ask that you'd unify us and keep us aware of how we can play out and live out these these, these uh, texts of scripture that we've been studying the past couple weeks when it deals with how to stay unified as a group of followers of Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.